0: The institution of slavery shaped the American nation. The great civil war we fought over it reverberates still in the divisions found in our country. The first slaves arrived in the North American colonies in the 1600s. Slavery was legal in all of the 13 colonies at the time of the Declaration of Independence. By the 1800s, slave labor formed a backbone for the economies of the southern states. Political opposition to the practice was strong enough that the importation of new slaves from Africa was restricted by Congress during the administration of Thomas Jefferson. The practice, though illegal, was known to continue almost to the time the Civil War erupted. The last slave ship known to make the transatlantic journey was the Clotilda in 1859. A man who made that very journey into servitude was still living in Alabama in 1927 when novelist and folklorist Zora Neale Hurston began to visit him in order to coax from him his life story. He was called Kujo Lewis, though his real name, his African name, was Kosula. He was of the Yoruba people from the region near present-day Nigeria. Kujo slash Kosula told a bitter tale of tragedy, tempered by his amazing ability to endure adversity. Zora Neale Hurston finished writing up this tale told by Kasula in 1931 but only this year has the work been published in book form thanks in no small part to the editing and promotional work of African studies scholar Deborah Plant. Zora Hurston's recounting of Kasula's tale has finally been published in 2018 as Barracoon the story of the last black cargo. It is deservedly attracting widespread praise and we are keen to discuss it Thus, we're delighted to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Deborah Plant.
1: Thank you very much, Everett. I'm very pleased to be here with you.
0: Well, Deborah, how is it you got involved in turning out a published book which has sort of in essence been on hold for almost 90 years?
1: The how of that is uh, really expansive. So, what I can say is that I've been a, a pretty much a, a lifelong scholar uh, of Hurston's work. I've studied her and her writing uh, since graduate school and I've written several books on her. And so I'm one of the one of the Hurston scholars that the Dorno Hurston Trust got in touch with me and asked me if I would consider editing uh, this unpublished work uh, for a publication. So that's the short of it.
0: Well, I think we need to talk a little bit about Zora Neale Hurston, a cultural anthropologist, novelist, and so much more. I gather that her work uh, at some point was largely forgotten, but she's now enjoying quite a resurgence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you said, she was an anthrop- anthropologist, also a writer, folklorist, uh, ethnographer. And we know her best in terms of her masterpiece, Um their Eyes Were Watching God, which was published in 1937. We, we, we know of her as an anthropologist, but I think with Barracoon we'll know more about her as an anthropologist who was also very skilled in ethnography as well as folklore collecting. And what, what stands out uh, a lot about her in relation to Barracoon is the fact that she was this brilliant social scientist, and Barracoon uh, represents actually one of the first book-length works that she that she did. This is the last one of the last books we have from her, but it was actually her first book. Yeah. It, simply, it simply wasn't published. And the fact that she could do this kind of work uh, in 1927, she had not even completed her studies uh, for her undergraduate degree. Oh she wow in the field uh, on behalf of Franz Boas and Carter G. Woodson by herself. <laughs> and so she was in the field by herself, not quite bachelor's degree in hand, and doing this level of work. This just shows she was also a genius social scientist.
0: Well, it's 1927, and she's sent down to Alabama to, uh, to talk to Cujo to Lewis. Uh, how, how did that come
1: about? Well, like I said, she was in the field on behalf of Franz Boas and Carter G. Woodson. Uh-huh. Um, Franz Boas, the you know we know him as the preeminent uh, father of of uh, a- cultural anthropology in America, and Carter G. Woodson was the founding director of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, and uh, Carter G. Woodson wanted her while she was in the field on, on behalf of a boy. He wanted her to also uh, collect the story from Corsola, uh, and so she went in 1927 to talk with him to get his story about the raid that uh, had had resulted in his capture. And so she got that story for him and uh, wrote up her report and gave it to him. But she went back in uh, later in in, in 1927. In December, and then into 1928, when she uh, conducted a series of interviews, which uh, became the narrative that we have today.
0: Well, I, I gather, Deborah, that part of the hang-up over this story being so long, you know, in, in reaching book form, is that um, that um, Zora Hurston was was determined that the book be published in his own words, and and other other people wanted to publish it in standard English, which, for my two cents, would would just never work. in his own words makes so much sense. Was that part of why it took so long to get this before the public?
1: That's part of the reason, yes, absolutely. She had received a letter from Viking uh, Press saying that they wanted to publish the book, and apparently they asked for it uh, more than once, because she says so in the letter. You know, Viking asked again uh, for uh, Cujo's story. And she says, but they wanted in language rather than dialect. And she, like you said, she simply refused to do it. Uh, As a uh, a consummate social scientist and ethnographer, she knew that you know this this, the way he spoke, the idiom he spoke in, uh, you know his his dialect. All of that was what authenticated his narrative. Not only is this an authenticating feature of his narrative. So much is embedded in the language. Yes. And to change that really is to change history. And to change that is to uh, also, you know, to, to, uh, what would I call it, to basically erase him. There was enough diminishment of his life and who he was as a human being without also basically taking away from him his own language.
0: So it's 1927. Uh, Kosula, rather remarkably, could tell people of a pre-slavery life back in an African village. And I gather that is a a truly rare thing in the story of American slavery.
1: Absolutely rare. It's so rare, I only know of of two accounts that are about African Americans. And we have uh, Kosula's account, uh, and he was enslaved in Alabama. And we have an account, which is more a history rather than an account, because the author did not uh, personally interview Al-Rahman Ibrahima, who was enslaved in Mississippi, but he, he collected all of the information, the, the newspaper accounts and all of that, and he gave us uh, the book title uh, Prince Among Slaves. And so we have those accounts, and you're right; it, it's 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 very very rare. And so this is a uh, an historical document, you know, that that's just um, we're just so lucky to have. It brings that part of the of the history, that part of our story to us, and and I think it's really important because what it what it shows us, what it has us have more insight about is what happened to individuals on the continent uh, in the barracoons uh, during the Middle Passage. We have, in terms of uh, those those uh, kinds of experiences, we have the historical accounts, maybe sociological accounts and that kind of thing, uh, but that is, you know, they amount to so many numbers and uh, dollar amounts and Uh, names of ships and captains and dates and all of that, but we don't have, you know, that story from the point of view of the people who experienced that. And it's so important to know that this experience was what it was, which was violent, it was traumatic, it was terrorizing, it was painful. And when we read, a uh, uh, account in Barracoon, we feel that pain. We feel his loneliness. We feel his, his uh, desire to return to his homeland and, and, and his disappointment when they learn that they can't do it, that they can never raise enough money yeah. you know, to make that trip back. And uh, he just suffered so many losses. Uh, not only on the continent of Africa, but also uh, in Alabama, losing all of his children and his wife.
0: Well, there, there's so much to tell in, in this in this story of his life. I, when, when I read it, the, the story of the capture, coastal's capture, transfer, uh, transport to the coast. It, it is so horrific. The brutality, of the attack uh, on his village, is shocking. Uh, being housed with those barracks on the coast, it's all really gut-wrenching stuff. It's it's it's, it's quite something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so we we have we have this story, which uh, I believe humanizes this institution we call slavery. It puts a face on it. Uh, when we talk about slavery or, uh, or what we call the transatlantic trafficking and whatnot, in such general terms, and in, in in those general terms, we sort of just have. Not even the 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 faintest kind of impression of what that was like for an individual. so so Barracoon allows us to not only see the collective experience but also to bring it to a point of one person's experience so we can have that kind of uh, empathetic and sympathetic uh, understanding of what happens to this human being and 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 I think for me, it, it allows us that history that we've been taught, and, and not very well and not in, with too many details, but that what of it that we've been taught, now, you know, here's a heartbeat to that. Here's a pulse. Here's a life. And we can, we can have that kind of understanding, which I think allows us to, um, to relate on a more personal level and understand it from the point of view of a human being, not just consumers of uh, history lessons and that kind
0: of thing. well I wanted to point out that that something along along that very line uh, the story has has so many looks small uh, tragic moments among among larger tragedies. I was struck by the fact that uh, when, when Kuja related making that transatlantic trip he, he starts out with the indignity of he and his crewmates being stripped naked and when he's telling the story decades later, He's still lamenting being unfairly slandered for their nakedness. I mean it's, it's his embarrassment uh, still touches the reader today.
1: Well, well that's right. You know, um and that speaks to his pride, you know. <laughs> he he had a, he had pride in himself and uh his appearance and that kind of thing. And and stripping him and his compatriots of their clothing, it was, you know, another another uh uh point of of dehumanization Uh, this idea that human beings are not quite human uh, and that they are chattel and you can treat them in a kind of way Um, it was just one more indignity and you know and then when they get to uh, america and people are laughing at them because they have no clothes and this is you know more insult to injury. And, and yeah, and and this is something we can all relate to. We know we have our own experiences when we felt exposed, uh, when we felt like we were really not being seen in our best light and this is really not how we really are or behave or, you know, how things are. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. These are, quote, unquote, small things but really big things when it comes to a human being's pride.
0: Well, another small surprise that really kind of took me aback was that, in, a, in spite of all that he endured and all that he had to withstand at, at the at various captors, at one point he actually compliments uh, Captain Bill Foster for not treating them meanly on, on their sea voyage, which was so, so remarkable that he had kind words to say about the people that brought him over.
1: Well, that speaks so well of Kosala. Yes. And even though Kosala, to see, he has a big heart. And, he, and you can see throughout his narrative that he's very forgiving and very generous and what have you. But his speaking well of William Foster really doesn't really speak well of William Foster, because William, the fact that Kosala and the other 109 people who were on that ship were on that ship at all does not speak well of Foster.
0: It <laughs> certainly doesn't. It certainly doesn't. And
1: so, yeah, I mean, he, he's at the source of, of all of this. That was his ship. He built it, and he... Uh, re outfitted it for that voyage. So, uh, he doesn't get a pass with me. <laughs> Although uh like I said before, Kosala was you know, very forgiving and yeah, we can forgive William Foster too, but we cannot forget the fact that he played this 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 uh very significant role in undermining the lives and uh you know the, the, the reality of of a over a hundred people. Um,
0: that's no small thing. Well, Cujo's role uh, as a human slave it lasts throughout the entirety of the Civil War. Of course, he explains how uh, how they worked them very, very hard. Yes, yes. But one day in April of 1865, I guess Union shol- soldiers show up. They say you're free to go as you please, um, which, of course, was which was uh, an illusion. But but I was <laughs> intrigued to see how the Africans who came over on the Clotilda, uh, coastal among them, threw together. To make a community for themselves,
1: it really speaks to uh, the ingenuity of African peoples, uh, their creativity, their resilience, their ability to continue to go on um, in the face of all of this horror and hostility, and still they had the wherewithal uh, to to do what they did. And what we have to know, we even if we you know have to surmise it that. They did what they did because of, you know, the, the kind of culture that they came from. They came from a culture of order and stability and chaos. And we're speaking specifically of, of uh, uh, Kosala and those who were, were uh, with him there in, in Africa town. Um, and so they brought that with them, the, their traditions, their customs. Um, their sense of justice and fairness and what makes sense and what have you. And, you know, even the art of the hierarchy that they had, they would uh, elect uh, African Peter as one of their leaders, even though he came from the group that was part of uh, their enslavement. They basically um, bring together all of their skills and their know-how. Uh, the, they were culture bearers, and they recreated in uh, Alabama what they could not ever again hope to uh, achieve, which is, you know, returning home. So they had to recreate Africa and Alabama, and they did this, uh, and they had their own internal rules and regulations about this, that, and the other. You know, they built their church, they, they built schools, they built their homes, they helped one another to do that, it, very communally oriented. I don't know that they had to do it, but on one level it, it almost became a necessity just out of self-protection because not only did they have to deal with the racism uh, that, you know, ensued after uh, the Civil War, they also had to had to deal with the hostility of African Americans who had been there before who were also taunting them and uh, being very mean toward them. Wow. So, um, in a sense you know this community that they created was uh self protective as well as an expression of their uh their their cultural genius as as such and so you know and because of that you, we have Africa Town and Africa Town is still is still there today
0: and the guy that you've been to the what the, the, the what is now morphed into and it's still still a going concern
1: yeah absolutely i've been there uh, it was part of my research when I uh, learned that I was would be editing this this narrative. I'm going like, I have to go there. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, he's one of the last living original uh, what they call Clotilda Clotilda Africans, and uh, and he started that town. I needed to be in that town to feel him. I wanted yeah. to feel his his spirit in uh, the spirit of the people who created that town. And it's not an incorporated town. It's more of a community within uh, what's called the town of Plateau. And I needed to, to walk in the spaces he walked in, um, and so I was able to do that. And I invite others to do it, too.
0: Yeah, I imagine Plateau is going to get a fair amount of attention seeing, the, seeing how, much, uh, how much is being spoken about your book.
1: Well, yeah, there is that. And then, you know, the continued search for the Clotilda. It wasn't too long ago, just a a month or or two ago, that they thought that they had found the Clotilda. It was another ship that was built with similar measurements, and so they found that it wasn't the Clotilda. But there, there is still an ongoing active search for the Clotilda. So, you know, that uh, keeps keeps Africa Town and Mobile uh, slash uh, Plateau, Alabama. You know, on the horizon for people as a place to visit
0: I was quite intrigued to 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 read how how it was that Kosla uh, described to to Zora Hurston about about religion. He got educated about Christ, he said, and was quite at home in the Christian faith. He explained it along the way of saying, "Well, you know nobody informed him about the fact that it was a Son of God now that he knew about it, he was glad for the knowledge but uh, but his Baptist faith also seems to retain some, some overtones of African religion, perhaps.
1: Well, absolutely. And, you know, this is uh, part of the acculturation. You know, like he told us, is we, we always knew there was a God, right? We always knew that. and But the addition to it is, you know, uh, with with the denomination of, of Christianity, uh, then with their particular denomination then there's there's the introduction of Christ and so um, yeah th- and, and he wants to he wants to be one with his community and when those in the African American community say you know tells when they tell him well you know you have to get religion and you you have to just read the bible and that kind of thing and he wants to uh... be in harmony with his surrounding community and so he takes that on and and he never learns to read but he listens when he goes to church to those who can read and then he memorizes that Mm uh... but you're right he continues to 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 express those aspects of his own uh... his own religious customs and traditions and his mother we know was an orisha devotee right so there is, there is, there is that 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 sense of uh, everything being an expression of uh, a divine being, and uh, and so he continues that, and he continues that what's very important in uh, uh, Yoruba religious or or, or uh, spiritual tradition is is the respect of of the cycle of life and part of that respect of the cycle of life is, is that you honor your elders and that's very evident in um, in his narrative and how they structure their community and that kind of thing so yes uh, that does continue and he talks about you know when they get free and, and they're you know doing their the, the drumming because that's part of the religious and spiritual traditions as well that music and. And they they are sort of criticized for that, and so as they're being shunned, it's not so much that they stop their traditions, but they try to take on more of what uh, you know the surrounding community is saying that well, you know, a good Christian will do this or do that or what have you, and so th- this is this is uh, how we um, witness the uh, the syncretizing of these different traditions to have what we call you know african based religion or African Christianity and that kind of thing
0: well his story certainly does remind one a bit of job from the Bible he, he he found a wife and together he reported that he was very happy for quite a long time they had six children together but but by 1927 he, he lost he'd lost them all That's and right. and uh, it's such a rather touching aspect of the book that uh, Zara Hurston, she was allowed by Costa to take his picture. He puts on his best suit, but he takes off his shoes, noting, I want to look like I'm in Africa because that's where I want to be. And it's, it's just a haunting photo of a man who has suffered so much and was still you know, still holding his head high.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the thing about, about all of his suffering is that he still, he still had a, a heart full of, of love. And that's so evident in um, how, when she was living, how he spoke about his wife. He says, you know, they tell me I have to get a license, (laughs) but I don't love her anymore uh, after the license as (laughs) I did before. You know, she's a good woman, and I love her all the time. And he had such tenderness in him. You know, he raised sugarcane so that when his grandchildren uh, would come, he could uh, uh, give them something and when Hurst, Hurston would come and visit, he would give her a couple of peaches that were just beginning to ripen and that kind of thing. Uh, so he was, he was someone who, because of the heart he had, and he came with that heart. You know, he didn't develop that in America. He came with that. He, when he was 19 years old when uh, they uh, took him out of his homeland. And, um, but he was, he was a very kind man. And, and he never, he never, he never let go of the possibility of joy, uh, and we know that too. When uh, not only does Hurston interview him for his life story, but she also collects stories from him, and so th- that makes a part of the book too. The you know stories that Colesla uh, told her, and some of those stories are hilarious. So we know that he maintained a sense of humor and he was able to share that and he shared that with with uh, Hurston and so those stories are collected in that uh, in that book as well.
0: Well, Deborah, as we kinda of wrap it up, I wanted to ask you what what surprised you most about A, uh Kosala's story and B about that complex path that it is taken to finally be published.
1: <laughs> okay, so those are two big questions. Yes, they, they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um the first one, the first one, what surprised me the most about his story, just the fact that we have it. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that we have it, and it is so, in my estimation as a writer also, it, it, it's just how I think, over and above the fact that we have it, is it, it is how Hurston presented it to us. The way she... Allowed him to reveal himself. It was just sheer elegance. And I think that gets me the most is is that how she got it, going back day after day, you know, he would send her away, and she would come back again, and you know, they could be sitting and talking, and he could go into uh, these reveries and be lost in thought and memory about his homeland and And she would just be so ever patient and kind and sympathetic and um and honor the fact that okay i, I need to leave him now you know or or you know he she co- she comes by and he needs to do something else he needs to clean the church and it was through all of that that she was able to help him tell his story and then she presented it in such a way that it just touches us and i find that just so magnificent Okay, and so the second question was.
0: The whole story of it taking so long to be being published, that itself is remarkable.
1: Well, you know, uh, everything in its own time. And it seems like the perfect time. Yeah, we could have had it before because a person could have said, Yeah, okay, you can publish it. I'll change, you know, the language. But she didn't do that.
0: I, I would say, Thank God.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, I, I know maybe uh, it could have been published once we had it in the collection at Howard University. It could have been published some time ago, maybe. But I think all things happen as there's a synchronicity to life. And when I look at uh, at Barracoon, I see that it comes into a conversation that is continuous and that has just sort of... Um, uh, evolved uh, currently, when we have books like uh, Colson Whitehead's *Underground Railroad, Railroad*, and Toni Morrison's *The Origin of the Other*, and Yagi Asi's, uh *Homecoming*, and you know these kind of books, and, and Tana Hesse Coates' uh, *Between the World and Me*, and uh, the 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 uh, uh, film production of uh, 13th which is about the Thirteenth Amendment how uh, slavery didn't end but evolved. And just so many wonderful books and works and so many wonderful things are happening as well. Just last week, Everett, just last week, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, apologized for slavery. That just says that we are so evolving as a nation and that we're ready to have these uh, transformative kinds of conversations about this very painful past. We know it's painful because when we read uh, Barracoon, we feel that pain, all of us. And it doesn't matter who we are, gender, sex, uh, politics, whatever. We feel that. And when we can feel that wounding, then even just the feeling of it brings the medicine to it. And so this is the, this this is part of our healing uh, as a people and as a nation. And uh, so I think I think the timing is just right.
0: We've been speaking with Deborah Plant, Africana Studies scholar and an expert on Zora Neale Hurston, whose work back in 1927-1931 is finally being published as Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo. A heck of a read. We recommend it to all of our listeners very highly. Thank you for speaking with us, Deborah.
1: You're very well- welcome, Everett. It has been my pleasure. I appreciate your interest too, and thank you for your call.
0: All righty. Very okay, good. Bye bye. Bye bye.